0: Another episode of the Agile Weekly podcast. I'm Derek Neighbors, and today I've got a guest, an original signatory of uh, the Agile Manifesto, Dr- James Grinning, with us. How's it going, James? Good, Derek. How are you? Good. You know, one of the things that that always intrigues me when I get uh, an opportunity to uh, talk with someone who's kind of been with Agile since the beginning is, you know, how maybe you see the Agile community, Agile practices, you know, what did they look like, you know, back in early 2000, 2001, versus, you know, a decade later, where they they are today? You know, where are there some similarities? Where are there some differences? Where did things maybe work out how you guys intended? And and where maybe there's some frustrations where you you maybe are pulling your hair out going, you know, it's been 10 years and we still haven't got this part of it right.
1: Yeah, okay. Uh, Well, that's a Interesting thing to talk about. I, you know, so uh, 10 years ago, or well, I, actually 12 or 13 years ago now, uh, when we started to get involved with extreme programming, uh, you know, at the, at the time of the Agile Manifesto, I was part of the uh, extreme programming contingent coming in there with Bob Martin and uh, Kent Beck and uh, Ron Jeffries. Um, I I don't mind at all saying that when I went to it, it was like, it's a Snowbird? Of course I'm going to go. That'll, that should be a good time, all these good people, and then some skiing to boot. So uh, you know, at the time we were just trying to see what uh, we had in common. It was uh, an interesting thing, you know, we didn't have any expectations that anyone would care. Bob Martin kind of, Bob and I I believe Alistair kind of got the whole thing started, let's get together and talk about what we have in common and uh, you know that's what the Agile Manifesto came from. Uh, We were, uh, one of the things that was surprising to me at the time, you know coming through the 90s, a lot of people might not recognize this but uh, Right or wrong, the way we viewed process, or at least kind of the this, the camp that I had been involved in in the '80s and '90s was if we could come up with a better process, then the people wouldn't matter so much. And I think that that was that permeated a lot in the '90s. And what was really different about the people that I was uh, with at the Agile Manifesto meeting was that really they were talking first and foremost about people, and that that was kind of surprising because of the Watts Humphrey's message sounded like, and the way industry interpreted it was, if you just had a better process, you could just plug any person into it, a plug-replaceable programming unit, and uh, get the same results, which, you know, that's one very different thing I saw about Agile. Yeah, I mean, so go You ahead. were wondering how uh, it might relate to today, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I think... Uh, the engineering practices and such behind extreme programming were what were intriguing to, uh, to me and to uh, Bob Martin and you know what, at Object Mentor, uh, we were uh, really seeing that those were kind of revolutionary and really going to help solve a lot of interesting problems. As naive coaches in the early two thousands, we thought people would hear them and be enthusiastic about them. And what I've what I'm still surprised at is how much resistance. You know some of these what we view as common sense approaches to developing software seem to be still so radical to people um you know the i, I think it's pretty interesting and cool that scrum has taken off so big but it's fairly empty in uh, some of the engineering practices they've done a, a lot to spread the idea of iterating but they haven't spread the idea so much of getting the quality up and really relying on high quality to go fast i know that's Schwabers and uh, Sutherland's intention in scrum but it's not really the way the industry's going and uh, or has gone so that's kind of disappointing although it makes lots of opportunities for a guy like me when companies finally realize that they need that because you know that's kind of the sweet spot that I like to get involved in
0: yeah I mean I, I definitely think that it's it's interesting that I think one of the kind of beautiful pieces that scrum has allowed is it's allowed some of the concepts of agility to permeate outside of software development, uh, where if maybe we just had solely XP, uh, we wouldn't be able to bring some of the concepts of you know really that it's all about people and working together and collaborating and iterating. Maybe those wouldn't make it into non-software pieces. But I definitely think <coughs> that one of the downsides has been there are a lot of people picking up what they really believe is agile in software development in totally uh, missing the whole essence of technical excellence and all of the pieces that are around that, and they they kind of think that they can be successful with just kind of half of it. And I think that you know anybody that's been around the comu- community for a while understands that you know if if you don't have you know a kind of good core technical competencies and technical excellence, that it's really hard to iterate fast.
1: Yeah, I would even so. You said half, and I would say maybe they're only getting a third of it. And uh, let's just, I bet we can come up with quarters next, but, uh, you know, the third is the mechanics of the iterative cycle. Oh, yeah. You know, there's 150,000 quote-unquote certified scrum masters out there that know the mechanics of uh, day one scrum, but, uh, you know, the other part, the other third is, uh, you know, being humane, being good to people. This is a thing that was shocking to me in the early 2000s, uh, you know. in and coming off the, if you just had the better process, the people wouldn't matter thinking. And, you know, the people really do matter. Uh, and then there's, of course, you know, the quality really matters. And that for that, you need to really have sound engineering and people that are, you know, not just programming as a job, but programming as, you know, a passion and an art form and a, you know, a discipline. Right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the problems that we've had is that for the most part, a lot of people are still selling Agile as just a better process. And they're not really, you know. So the the people that are paying to have it adopted in their company are, are really taking the very '90s approach of, okay, if I spend money and I go get this agile coach or I get a scrum master or I, I implement this thing, then I'm going to be able to plug anybody into it and they're going to go faster and it's just a better process. And, and you know,
1: yeah. So you know, the engineering still wants to behave that way. If I just show them how these good practices work, then they're going to want to do them, and <laughs> unfortunately, it doesn't work that way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so you know, is is part of that? I, I think that we're seeing a lot of influences from uh, other communities as well. Certainly, you know, lean and kanban and another. Uh, you know uh, other ways of kind of I think people are starting now to kind of try to hack processes they understand that um, you know maybe there's some methodology maybe there's um, some principles you know you know how, how can they maybe kind of create or roll their own or experiment with different things and one of the things I've seen that's been pretty popular lately um, you know certainly I'm, I'm a fairly big fan of you know planning poker or planning exercises to be able to understand where you, we might sit a few weeks out and, and have some decision making process Um, before we kind of go and spend money. But I I know um, that even, you know, Ron and Chet, to a certain degree, um, certainly those in the Kanban camp are are kind of leaning more away from kind of traditional uh, estimating up front and more kind of taking an approach of let's look at the work we're doing, kind of measure some of that work we're doing, and and then see if we can get some predictive uh, capabilities based off of uh, work already done. And as someone who kind of, you know, the maybe the godfather of uh, planning poker, what are some of your thoughts about uh, planning now, you know, several years later?
1: Yeah, um, well, you know, I don't disagree with any of the things that you just said there. I, I think, uh, you know, the the idea of thinking that at the beginning of a project we can really lay out a detailed plan that's going to work is I'm more and more convinced that that's crazy. Uh, how do you plan an invention? I think, uh, you know, there's if we were, just pounding out widgets, it would be one thing, but uh, you know, there's really a an invention being created there, uh, pretty much everywhere that software is being invented, or you know, whatever you're applying uh, Agile or lean to. Well, I suppose manufacturing, you know, so there's there is a, a a disconnect between the flavor of lean in manufacturing and a flavor of lean in design. And, uh, you know, because one is you need variation in design to come up with creative ideas. And in manufacturing, you need to be able to do the same thing over and over again uh, with high quality. Uh, but so, you know, what about what about planning? You're asking me, uh, you know, I actually tell people not to use planning poker um, because I feel like it's too slow at, at the time of you know the first meeting when. I just kind of dreamed it up out of a pragmatic need to get a meeting that was stalled going again. Um, It really helped speed us up. But then we discovered other things within the same year that sped us up even more, like using affinity grouping and such so that we could uh, start to see, you know, which things are alike, which things are different. Then, you know, do a kind of batch mode planning poker on piles of stories. But, you know, we know that those estimates are really wrong, and you're just trying to come up with some kind of guesses to – how big something is, you know, so you can know whether or not you should proceed. And uh, I, uh, if you spend two days playing planning poker, you're wasting two days. You could do that in two hours using other techniques. So, uh, you know, I, I hear what the lean people are saying. Why, why estimate it all? But, you know, my world uh, in embedded systems where there's hardware and software they have to come together, uh, the business has to have an idea of when things are going to happen. And so we can't just live in the ideal world of what's the most important thing to do next. Although we do work on the most important thing to do next, we've got to try and create some vision of how long it's going to take. Yeah, I mean,
0: I, I like to kind of tease and say, well, we call them estimates for a reason. If they're actuals, we would call them actuals. But, I, you know, I, I think I take a very similar approach in that, um, you know, really it's about estimating as quick as humanly possible and getting something that is, um, is accurate, not necessarily as precise as possible. So if we know going in that it is an estimate and that it's it's... You know, the, the, the bigger amount of time we're trying to measure, the more inaccurate we're going to be. Um, but if we can spend, you know, we like to use kind of a, if you're taking more than a minute per story to kind of come up with an estimate, you, you're probably taking uh, more time than it's worth unless you're, you know, you really need to be precise. Um, yeah, unless you're
1: about to work on it. Yeah, If you're exa- about to work on it, okay. But if you're just trying to come up with a release plan, for instance, that kind of stretches out to see how insane we are for trying to do what we're trying to do, uh, you know, then it should be very fast.
0: Yeah, it's kind of the the litmus test, right? You know, is this is this something we could even f- remotely uh, fathom to do in in this amount of time? And if the answer is no, we just keep kind of chunking it down until we we get something that that's about there. And it it won't be right, but at least we'll be somewhere in the neighborhood of the ballpark. And I find that most uh, you know product managers that's good enough for them. You know, they want to know. You know, they don't want to be told, yeah, you're going to get everything and then you don't get anything. So if somebody can kind of chunk it down to a reasonable uh, piece, they can either go out and ask for more money or, you know, move dates or do some things kind of up front, which gives them a little bit, you know, remove some of the anxiety from them really, you know, gives them the the ability to say, is this worth doing? So I I think you talked a little bit about um, embedded um, work, and I I think that some of the work you're doing with uh, embedded TDDs. Um, pretty fascinating in the sense of, I I think, you know, 10 years ago, I don't think a whole lot of people would have thought that, um, you know, kind of agility was a place where hardware and software would necessarily all intersect with each other. But I think it's becoming more and more commonplace, um, in, in kind of the, you know, manufactured or embedded world, especially as we move to mobile devices, a number of other things. So what are, what are some kind of trends you're seeing in the embedded world in the adoption of, uh, maybe some of the XP practices?
1: Well, I am seeing, uh, you know, so actually there's, the funny thing is about, uh, embedded software is yes, there are some different things about it, but it really doesn't matter because all the techniques and principles, for instance, the solid design principles and, uh, having rapid feedback, these are all things that are going to be helpful, whether you're programming on a microcontroller or an Android phone or an IBM mainframe, if there is such a thing anymore, um. Right, so the, uh, the underlying principles are the same. And you know, I had this nice advantage of growing up in the embedded world and then spending a bunch of time not in it. And I, when I first ran into extreme programming, it just seemed to solve some problems. For instance, uh, the, one of the challenges of the embedded engineer is that they don't have hardware usually. And what that used to mean to us is that we would code like crazy with no way of knowing if it works. And then when we finally got the hardware really close to the deadline, then we'd have to go figure out if it works. And, of course, it didn't. You know, we had these high hopes that all of our documents and everything were going to make it so that we just plug it in and it worked. But, nope, we had to go back and make sure every line of code did the right thing. You know, we're just pretty much back to verify each line of code, which, you know, when someone objects to TDD, they're objecting, you have to verify each line of code. Yeah, but you do anyway, so (laughs) (laughs) don't pretend like this is different. Um, You know, so uh, I am seeing that there's more interest in it, in applying TDD and embedded, and it's not just the TDD part. It's the iterative cycles. It's the breaking your work into uh, vertical slices. All these things are kind of foreign. You know, engineers are uh, famous for being chopped into their, you know, into their silo and shoved in a cube, and come out several months later and try to integrate something and uh, you know, some people are trying to change that, and I've been, I've been working on trying to change that for the last. Uh, you know, if I go back and look at my history of going and speaking at the Embedded Systems Conference, it's uh, probably eleven years now.
0: And since I've you, started
1: to try to get people th- thinking about this. So I'm going do, next week, as a matter of fact. Do you see
0: a lot of the challenges as being fundamentally the same between embedded teams and non-embedded teams adopting XP? or are there some challenges that Tend to be a little bit different. That you know, maybe you know, typical software teams don't struggle as much with, or they don't even have the problem where embedded teams maybe do because of their toolset or you know the uh, other outlying factors that uh, don't exist yeah. for for most teams. Well,
1: well, you know, so if I'm a Java programmer and I'm building a program for uh, a computer that the Java compiler and virtual machine run on, I'm building and testing on the machine that I work on. So a fundamental difference for embedded is you're building in test you're building on uh, a PC or a Linux box or a Mac and you're running your code on something else and so there's a fundamental difference here. But you know, uh, for instance, C is supposed to be portable. So why not write your code in as much as as possible to be portable so that you could run unit tests and such off the target and then only r- and then run. You know some of them on the on the targets that they call it you know an embedded they call it a target system you know the different processor, but so there's there's a fundamental difference there. But then when I think about the techniques, that is you know so uh, an embedded engineer might say well I'm special because I have to interface with, you know a piece of a device, and a uh, business programmer is going to say well I'm special because I have a database or a UI. Now the techniques for breaking the dependencies on devices or databases or UIs. Are all the same techniques. The problem is that oftentimes the embedded engineer doesn't even know they exist because they don't they don't relate to uh, software developers uh, outside of embedded. Many times, I don't want to make blanket statements, but it's generally you know they they align more with uh, engineering and maybe electronics and um, you know. So the uh, the awareness of techniques that work. And would be useful to them that come from Java or Ruby or whatever, they're unaware of and don't know how to apply them. And, uh, you know, if they could be aware of them, they could certainly improve uh, aspects of their work. So TDD is one of these examples. They wouldn't know about it if, uh, well, I don't want to pat myself on the back too much, but I have been promoting it for over 10 years now. And there are people that are starting to do it and have been doing it with a lot of success.
0: Yeah, I mean I, I certainly I certainly even see that within um, you know, typical software teams where, you know, maybe, you know, have a lot of experience, say, in the Ruby community, and then you move uh, to a Java community and a lot of the tools and some of the maybe kind of cutting edge things that a dynamic language brings you in some of the thought process. I'm um, certainly those that use small talk in another languages going back to C is when you kind of get these new insights, they they become kind of second nature um, uh, for you, but you don't realize that another community that has never seen them before don't understand some of the techniques or the principles and aren't able to leverage them. And so I think you know some of it is it's really great to to be able to share kind of uh, cross-discipline, you know, to be able to... A Ruby programmer to talk to a Java programmer to talk to a COBOL programmer to talk to an embedded talk to an developer. Embedded, talk yeah. to an
1: embedded C programmer.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly, you know, I mean, because you can learn something from kind of all sides. I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right that they, they're they more similar than they are different. We just maybe use different uh, language about how we talk about them or how we see the problems. So yeah, if- no,
1: there's... That is exactly true. Uh, the language that, you know, the kinds of problems people are trying to solve... And the, uh, you know, the domain language maybe the domain languages might could bridge both, but uh, you know, the solution space is very different um, as far as what things we talk about and how we talk about them in embedded versus other areas. So
0: we're at the the end of kind of our time box. Um, is there anything that you've got coming up that you'd like to share with people? Any books, events, uh, training, you name it uh, that you'd like to share oh, with people? Okay,
1: sure. Well, uh, you could. You can look at my uh, website. I've got kind of a root website, jamesgrenning.com, that's easy to remember if you remember my name. Uh, there's not much there, but it's got the links to the other stuff I'm involved in. Uh, for instance, uh, you know, my business is Coaching and Training. I've been uh, quite busy helping embedded developers uh, get started with TDD and deal with their uh, very difficult and challenging legacy code problems. I've also got some public training coming up. Uh, you can look at my website, and usually there'll be a banner in the corner about that. Uh, there's, uh, there's, a, there's one coming up in uh, October, and then we haven't scheduled the one for the spring, but we're going to do another one in the spring uh, with one of my partners. And uh, I've got uh, the Embedded Systems Conference. If you uh, listen to this podcast right after it's published, and maybe not before the uh, Embedded Systems Conference Boston happens, <laughs> and you're out there, come and see me.
0: Sounds great. Thank you for your time. We really enjoyed having you.
1: Hey, Derek. Really nice to talk to you.
0: All right. Thanks.
1: Yep. Is there something
0: you'd like to hear in a future episode? Head over to integrumtechcom slash podcast, where you can suggest a topic or a guest. Looking for an easy way to stay up to date with the latest news, techniques, and events in the Agile community? Sign up today at agileweekly.com. It's the best Agile content delivered weekly for free. The Agile Weekly Podcast is brought to you by Integrum Technologies and recorded at Gangplank Studios in Chandler, Arizona. For old episodes, check out integrumtech.com or subscribe on iTunes.
1: Need help with your Agile transition? Have a question and need to phone a friend? Try calling the Agile hotline. It's free. Call 866-244-8656.